0: Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. Matthew 26, 6 through 13. Let's pray before reading. Our Father, as we, your covenant people, this evening, bow our hearts and heads and come to this wondrous text. May our hearts once again be moved to consider the sacrifice of our Savior. And may we learn from this woman something of what it means to worship Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. But you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now we have turned the page. Jesus is nearing the cross. This incident follows upon the meeting of the members of the Sanhedrin to plan Jesus' death. We read in this chapter, verses 3 and 4, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. They said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They gathered and they plotted which is an allusion to Psalm 31, verse 13, a lament of a righteous sufferer from which comes the words of Jesus on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There seem to have been two anointings of Jesus. Evidently, it was not unheard of for rabbis to be anointed in this way. And so when critics tell you that you're dealing with... um, with contradictions and so forth, no, it seems really that there were two anointings. One in Galilee, we find that in Luke and the other in Bethany, and we find that in Mark and in Matthew and John. Now let's focus on the anointing of Jesus as we have it here in this text, in Matthew. I think it's a wondrous thing. It's a beautiful story, always moving to me to read. And Matthew includes, by divine inspiration, an incident that modern historians would simply look over. The first thing we see, I think, as we come to the text is that Christ calls for extravagant devotion. Look again at verses 6 and 7. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Jesus was in the house of Simon the leper, evidently a leper that had been healed by Jesus, and this woman brought an extravagant gift, an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. The alabaster flask in and of itself would have been very, very expensive, but surely with the ointment inside, a tremendously expensive gift brought to Jesus. Perhaps it was an heirloom. It uh, was probably representative of all the savings that this woman, who was Mary of Bethany, we learn from other places, probably all the savings that she had. It was an extravagant gift brought to Jesus. The disciples focus on the cost of the perfume, probably made of the nard plant from the Himalayas. It had come a long way through through the, the travels of of those who uh, would trade on the, the road that would pass through Palestine. Nard was used to anoint the hair and the head, as we read in the Song of Solomon, but it was also used to anoint the dead. And here, love and death interplay in this passage. On impulse, it seems, she takes the most expensive item she has, this alabaster flask filled with pure nard, Breaks the jar and drenches Jesus. Can you smell the scent? Imagine the most precious scent, that which most appeals to you. She would have to break off the top of the flask to release the ointment. And even though we're focused on Matthew, John tells us that it was worth about 300 denarii, which was about an average year's wages. A lot of money. The whole house would have been filled with the aroma. I've read in several places a rabbinic statement. The scent of good oil is diffused from the bedchamber to the dining hall, while a good name is diffused from one end of the world to the other. And indeed, her deed is still told from one end of the world to other, just as Jesus said it would. She brings then the gift of the alabaster flask filled with nard. But really, this woman is bringing the gift of herself, isn't she? That's the gift that she's bringing. Christ calls for this devotion. She's bringing herself when she brings this gift. An impulse, a heart fervent, devoted. Now, what about you? What does this say to you and to me? Just from impulse of love, have you visited the sick, served a neighbor, whatever it may be, all because of Christ, because of who he is. You give him yourself. She saw her need of radical mercy, and she brings to Jesus herself and her best. And in this, she is your forerunner, for Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. But I think we calculate far too much. Love just loves. She didn't calculate. There's no arithmetic here. She didn't say, now let me think about how many years it's taken for me to get this, or perhaps it was an heirloom I can pass down. She didn't stop and think, how much money's involved? What does this cost? I won't have it anymore. Perhaps I might might need it if I'm sick in the future. She doesn't do any of that. Does this powerfully speak to your heart about the greatness of the Lord to whom we are called to be devoted? Your life is the real perfume, if you will just let it be. You can carry that jar throughout life unbroken over your Savior's head. Just hold it in your hand, never broke it, broken. But life is slipping away and you cork the bottle or you seal it up. Or in fear of cost, you dole it out with a medicine dropper just a little at the time. Yeah, I'll serve Jesus, but just a little of my devotion. Jonathan Edwards well said, So much more men exalt themselves, so much less will they surely be disposed to exalt God. And This woman wants to exalt Jesus with her whole soul. I think secondly, we see that the world sees devotion to Christ such as this as foolishness, other foolishness. Even the disciples did not understand this woman and her devotion. Look again at verses 8 and 9. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now we know from other places that Judah certainly was saying this, but evidently the disciples as a whole had this viewpoint. They did not understand this woman and they did not understand her devotion. Self-righteous religionists will always see it that way. What a waste. We can understand that Judas saw it that way, but the disciples, the whole band of disciples, you see, they're learning from this, and they're learning what it is to follow Jesus. They're learning something about discipleship, which calls for whole-souled discipleship. Self-righteous religionists will see extravagant devotion to Christ as foolish because self-righteous religionists do not know what it is to live life doxologically, to live life with the glory of God first and foremost in mind. Let's put it another way. She acted solely out of the impulse of love. She didn't ponder, now is this my duty to do this? She certainly did not pause with the concern over what people would think about her, how does that inform our hearts? Are we serving Jesus just out of duty? Are we concerned more about what people think than what our service to Christ should be and what he calls forth from us as the Lord of glory? Charles Spurgeon said, "...a sanctified heart more beautiful than the transparent vase of alabaster was that hour broken." Only from a broken heart can the sweet spices of grace give forth their rich perfume. What she did, she did purely for Christ. She did not do it because she thought there was virtue in it. She did not do it because it was duty. She did not do it because she thought there was merit in it. There wasn't. And the wonderful thing is that in so doing, the incident turns our attention away from the woman to Jesus. Foolishness to the greedy, foolishness to the covetous heart, foolishness to the self-righteous because they do not understand who Jesus is. They are also failing to take into account what is about to happen. Because in the opening verses of chapter 26, we read, When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He revealed to his disciples that he is about to be crucified. Revelation only can be our starting point. What God says to us through his word. Jesus' life is now rushing to the cross. And this woman is learning to respond to revelation. But are there not poor people who need the money from this ointment? That was the discussion going among the disciples in verses 8 and 9. All around them, they must have been talking about this. And within walking distance, just go out the door. Within walking distance, undoubtedly, there would have been hundreds upon hundreds of people in poverty-stricken Palestine in need of this money so that they could have some food or some warmth Or some kindness shown to them. But Jesus answers in verses 10 and 11 in a way that baffles the self-righteous. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Perhaps he simply knows their thoughts. Or perhaps it's because of the whispering in the room. Jesus will have nothing to do with criticism of this woman. Stop criticizing this lady. You call it waste, I call it a beautiful thing. And Jesus gives three reasons, good reasons, for what this woman has done. First, he says, it is for me. Secondly, he says... You will never lack opportunity to serve the poor. She has taken a unique, unrepeatable opportunity to serve me. And thirdly, she anticipates my burial. The passage is permeated with thoughts of Jesus' death. It's the time of the Passover, redemptive death, saving death, sacrificial death, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. She anticipates my burial. Now, anointing usually marks festivity. Anointing such as this woman did was associated usually with parties, not with funerals. She has entered more fully into the mind of Jesus than the disciples. She did not purpose to give this oil to the poor. She purposed to give it to Jesus. The poor are always here. Jesus will not always be here. He will die on the cross, and obviously this woman has been given an ear-to-hear revelation. Jesus will not always be there to receive this gift. He's going to the cross. You will always be able to help the poor. The incarnate Son of God is going to die. And the same gospel can be proclaimed. One does not hear with understanding. Another does. This woman hears by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, Matthew goes on to make it plain that this was the last straw for Judas. After this incident, he made arrangements with the chief priests to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. I've had enough. This man is just incomprehensible to me. I've had enough. And we read in verses 14 and following Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Ah, uh, what was his real concern? His real concern about the nard It's because he wanted to get his hands on the money. That was his real concern. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Don't think this happened in the snap of a finger. To Judas. His affection for Jesus must have been dying for some time. He didn't need the Savior because he never understood how utterly bad he was. And even at the end, Judas shows remorse, but he doesn't show repentance. Watch your hearts. The Gospels show the sparkle of the diamond of grace against the backdrop of the dark, dark unbelief of Judas. The world then sees this as foolish, but my friend, what this woman did, she did for Christ. The world sees this as a total waste. How would the world see the life of Henry Martin, incredibly gifted young man, going to India and to Persia, translating the scriptures, preaching the gospel, dying at age 31? His motto, whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. Someone wrote of his plan, his plan for life. Listen, Henry Martin's plan for life. The object is too great for one short life. I like that. The object is too great for one short life. His portrait hung in Charles Simeon's chambers. Simeon, that great evangelical Anglican minister in Cambridge. He knew a great deal of suffering himself for the cause of Christ. Be serious, he would say, looking at the portrait. Be in earnest. Don't trifle. Don't trifle. And I won't trifle. He gave his time, Henry Martin did, his money, his prayer, his energy, and even his health to Jesus Christ. So here we have a clash of worldviews, don't we? A Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, a Christ-centered worldview, and the worldview of those who do not understand the gospel. One worldview says, what a waste. The other says, what a savior. What does Jesus say? She has done a beautiful thing for me. I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones, that truly great expositor, Westminster Chapel in London. Do you know Dr. Lloyd Jones was a medical doctor? Dr. Lloyd Jones had his profession on Harley Street in London. He was the assistant to the well known doctor who was the royal physician. He was on his way up in the medical profession. God called him to preach, he gave up medicine. And began to preach the gospel. And when he would be asked about giving up his medical practice, he would say, I gave up nothing. Do you understand that? Does that communicate with you? Now thirdly, devotion arises from the perception of Christ's uniqueness. This woman then recognized her need. She knew that she was loved, and she loved in return. This woman recognized the incarnate Son of God is going to the cross. He will not always be here to receive my gift. Jesus deserves my gift. Jesus deserves my life. Jesus deserves my best. Jesus deserves the most extravagant outpouring of the best that I have to offer. Or... Perhaps this woman acting out of pure love in response to Jesus' words has very little knowledge of what the cross means at this point. But Jesus puts the construction on the anointing that he does in order to press upon those around what is soon to happen. The anointing prepares Jesus for burial, it does not anoint him as Messiah, of course. The Lord Himself anointed His Son as the Messiah but it prepares for burial. D.A. Carson wrote, The anointing prepares for his burial after dying the death of a criminal, for only in that circumstance would the customary anointing of the body be omitted. Why then does Jesus accept this woman's gift? Have you ever asked that question? Why does he accept her gift? To what does it all point? Well, I will tell you. Jesus accepts the gift, <clears throat> incomprehensible though it is even to those closest to him at this point, because he deserves it. To put it another way, Jesus accepts the gift because of who he is. We read in John five twenty three that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He deserves it. He deserves this gift. He deserves her life. He deserves your gift. He deserves your life. And he accepts the gift as an indication of the atonement that he is about to make for the sins of his people, going to the cross and bearing the wrath of God and then going into a grave. Utter humiliation of the second person of the Trinity, God himself. Utter humiliation for our sakes. And Schilder, the Dutch theologian, says it so beautifully. Schilder says now Jesus receives the ointment from the hand of the Father. Heaven lets it drip through Mary's hand upon upon his blessed body. The anointing ultimately comes not from this woman, Mary of Bethany, but from the Father through his servant, Mary. I wonder if the odor of this perfume continued through his trial. I wonder if the odor of this perfume mixed with sweat and blood continued on through his scourging. And I wonder if the odor surrounded the cross. Beware of a commitment to the doctrine of your own competence and beauty. Be devoted to Christ because of his uniqueness. Because because you see his utter devotion to you, be utterly devoted to him. How devoted is he to you? Well, do you remember the benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. The Lord bless you because... He cursed the Lord Jesus in your place. The Lord keep you because he forsake, he forsook Jesus. The Lord make his face to shine upon you because Jesus was shrouded in darkness. The Lord be gracious to you because there was no grace to him. The Lord turn his face toward you because the father turned his face from his own dear son. The Lord give you peace because he gave peace his son, your hell, in your place. That's how devoted he is to you. And you know, the disciples understood later. Later they understood this. And later they were willing to devote their lives. And later Peter was willing to be crucified upside down. And later the disciples gave their lives for Jesus. What changed their understanding after the crucifixion? It was in the fact that Jesus was alive, that he had been raised by the power of the Father from the dead. This is the beginning of a wholly new way of viewing the world and a wholly new way of viewing our place in it. His devotion to us in his death and his devotion to us in his life call for our devotion to him with our lives which belong to him by purchase. So Warfield is right. The Lord no more died for you 2,000 years ago than he also lives for you in heaven. Now let me draw out some final thoughts. Let's begin here. You know, if there were not something wonderful about this story, Jesus would not have linked it to the gospel and would not have added the promise that we read in verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know, if you read John 11, that's the passage in which we have the resurrection of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. There's an incidental remark there that speaks of Mary, and it says that Mary, Mary, you know, is the one who anointed Jesus. You've ever noticed that in John 11? You know what's so special about it? It hasn't taken place yet in John's gospel. That means that when John writes, the people to whom he writes are already aware of what she's done. What Jesus promised in verse 13 has already begun to be fulfilled. People know about her, know about her devotion, and know about what she has done. I find that quite wonderful. This woman knew her need. She knew that she was loved and what she did What she did was produced in a in a word that we just don't use much anymore and it's that great old word zeal. Zeal. She had no fear of man. She gave no thought to being viewed as foolish so long as she could demonstrate her love to the Lord. And I think it strikes a blow at lazy, sleepy Christianity, which is just not 16 ounces to the pound. What is the last thing that you or I would ever think of bringing to Jesus? I don't know what it may be for you. Money, your thought life, your sexual conduct, your leisure time, your business ethics, But what is the watermark of the Christian life? You know what a watermark is. You take a fine piece of stationery, you hold it up to the light, and there you can see a mark. It tells you the manufacturer, perhaps the fine hotel. What's the watermark? When you hold the Christian up to the light, what should you see? What's the watermark? The watermark of the Christian's love. Again, as Edwards says, the essence of all true religion lies in holy love. And that's what we see with this woman. It's not about this woman really at all, not ultimately. This text is about the Christ who draws this from the woman, who has so loved this woman that she cannot help herself. She must show her devotion to the Lord. Is that you? I know that God loves me and Christ has shown his love to me and it so overwhelms me I can't help myself. I must show my devotion to the Lord. Now Charles Spurgeon preached on this text and I read it the sermon when I was about 16 years old. He handled it quite differently than I'm handling it tonight. There's something about that sermon that really impressed me, mightily impressed me. And let me give to to you the, the one little sentence. Spurgeon said this, this is the application of the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, from this text. However extraordinary may be the mandate, go and do it. Now, there I am, a 16-year-old boy, reading Charles Spurgeon. Lord, does that mean I really can be a minister of the Word? That I really can devote my life to the preaching of the gospel and pastoring your people? Lord, can I do that in service to you? However extraordinary may be the mandate, go and do it. That seemed extraordinary to me. For someone here teaching a Sunday school class, man, that just seems way out of my league. That's extraordinary. For somebody else, VBS or serving in the library or serving a neighbor, serving Christ in another country, or perhaps a young man that is responding to the call to preach. What is the mandate, what is the call that the Lord extends on your life? Perhaps it's just being faithful where you are day by day by day. And that's surely true of us all. And Spurgeon used an illustration, George Whitfield on Kennington Common. How ridiculous to go to Kennington Common, where all of London would gather and play games and do lewd and rude things, and to set up a movable pulpit in the middle of Kennington Common and, and preach the gospel to people. What a, what a silly, ridiculous thing. Nobody had ever done that before. And George Whitefield did it. And God sent a mighty awakening and a revival of godliness in England. However extraordinary may be the mandate, go and do it. Some sense of call in your life that you should serve him in some way, go do it. Don't calculate, just Serve him. And I don't think this is moralizing. I think that the text is about Christ and not about the woman. Therefore, let your life be about Christ and not about you. Love to Christ spreads a heavenly fragrance like the woman's broken vase, it makes your daily life's experience a little heaven on earth. And true love to Christ makes the duties He requires of us delightful because they are dipped by faith in Christ's crimson blood. Give yourself to Christ. Give your devotion to Christ. Give your heart to Christ. And whatever you give, know that what He has given to you is way out of proportion, infinitely out of proportion to anything that you will give for Him. Now, people of God, we came to the Supper this morning, and I think this text helps us to remember that our Savior is unique and deserving, don't you? And this unique, deserving Savior went to the cross to atone for our sins, there will be no more anointing for his burial. He rose from the dead. But we now give our lives to the one once anointed by a woman who has been raised by God's power from the dead. And so when you smelled this other aroma this morning, I really love to be in the position I'm in when I break the bread, when I lift the lids and I smell the aroma of the cup. When you smelled that aroma this morning, when the wine was uncovered, when you held the bread in your hands, when you took those sensible signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Did you remember? Your Savior went to the cross and rose from the dead. And therefore, He really does deserve all of my devotion. He deserves your alabaster flask-filled with pure nard. And think on Calvin's words. The odor of his resurrection is now sufficient efficacy without spikenard and costly ointments to quicken the whole world. That's love's aroma. Love's aroma spread far and wide. Amen.